Well, we turn our attention to the Word of God. If you would, in your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Romans in the New Testament. To Romans chapter 3. And we'll be looking at verses 20 down to verse 25. But let me begin for us just by reading from verse 19 down to verse 25. This is what God's word says, beginning in Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Amen. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, we ask now that by Your Spirit this morning, You would help us to comprehend and to Receive by faith the truth that you have spoken for us in your word. Help us to see the glory and wonder of the gospel. Lord, empower us to comprehend the depths of your love in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. The book of Romans is the single greatest exposition of the gospel. And in it, the Apostle Paul explains uh, various aspects and facets of the gospel in systematic fashion, beginning with the problem of sin and man's hopeless condition, and then proceeding to show us the depths of God's mercy and grace to us in Jesus Christ, who came to save us from our sin. And in some sense, I find that this passage here that we just read in the middle of chapter 3 gives us the clearest window into the heart and essence of the gospel. Because it's within this portion of the text that we can so clearly see the turning point, the gospel pivot, if you will. Where after having dismantled every sense of hope in ourselves and having confronted us with the inescapable problem of our sin in the first few chapters, it's here that the Apostle Paul finally turns our eyes to look to Jesus, the hope of salvation for sinners. Now, if you're a visitor here today, uh, maybe you have no idea what the gospel is. For all you know, the word gospel is just indicating another genre of music. But the word gospel literally means good news. And the entire message of the whole Bible can be summarized by this one word, the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ who came to save sinners, that all might have eternal life in him. That is, to put it another way, heaven. And if this is all new to you, perhaps your impression of the gospel, your impression of what the Bible is about, is something like, well, be a good person, 
live a morally upright life, and God will accept you because you tried your best and you're a pretty good person. That was a very common impression people have about the Bible. Because that's practically how everyone thinks, what every man-made religion teaches. And if you go out to the streets and you ask people this question, how do you get to heaven? What must someone do to have a good, quote-unquote, afterlife? Well, the vast majority of the answers that you'll receive from all kinds of people, religious or not, from all kinds of different religions, will, will be summed up in this response, which is, be a good person. As long as you haven't done anything crazy and live some outrageous criminal life, but you instead you, you maintain decent morals, you do some good deeds uh, here and there, you'll probably, hopefully, be good enough for fill in the blank, heaven, nirvana, paradise, or whatever happy ending you prefer. Again, this is the predominant belief of mankind that by our own effort and merit, and our moral achievement, we can keep improving ourselves and eventually climb our way back up to God. But friends, that's not the gospel at all. In fact, that's the very antithesis of the gospel. The, the Bible is not some moral guidebook that's here to just instill good traditional values and to help you along your quest for self-improvement. No, the message of the Bible, the gospel of Jesus Christ says this, that you and I are sinners before God. And that everyone, without exception, is fallen in sin. And no matter how good you think you are, you will never be good enough because you are already fallen in sin. Even as verse 23 says right there, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is absolutely nothing you can do to clean yourself up, to improve and to elevate yourself and somehow become good enough for God's acceptance and approval. As sinners, we are hopelessly fallen in sin. No matter what we try to do, we are all destined to receive God's righteous judgment and eternal punishment. This is the plain truth. This is objective reality. Regardless of all of our wishful thinking and optimistic feelings about ourselves or about each other. Now this is terrible news. It doesn't sound like good news at all. Because you hear this and you think, who then can be saved? Who then can ascend to God and stand in His presence and be accepted by Him? The answer is no one can by their own merit, by their own striving. But friends, here is the good news. The amazing grace of God that what we could not do, what we could never do, what we are powerless to do, God did for us through Jesus Christ, His Son. He lived the human life of perfect, sinless righteousness on behalf of sinners who confess their sin and put their trust in what He has done in their place. This is what's at the heart of the gospel. God's message of salvation to the sinful world that hopeless sinners like you and me could stand before Him as blameless and as righteous 
not on the basis of what we have done, but solely on the basis of what someone else has done, namely Jesus. This is God's message of salvation to the world. There is no other way but to turn away from yourself and to turn to Jesus, to put your entire hope and trust in Him, not in yourself. Because you see, the Bible makes it very clear, especially here in Romans chapter 3, that our so-called good deeds, they're really useless and worthless before God. Notice how it says in verse 20, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified. That is, no human being will be considered righteous in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. No amount of your good works can make you righteous and acceptable before God. Why? Because God is the standard by which we are evaluated. His law is what every one of us is measured by. Now, if you hear this and you think, all right, I'm ready for it. I'm ready to stand trial. I've been prepared for this evaluation and this examination. Let me just pull out my moral resume because I've done a lot of good things in my life. If that's what you think, then I'm sorry to tell you, you are terribly mistaken. You don't know what you're asking for. You are not ready to stand before God. You will not pass His judgment. Because you see, God is holy. He's holy, which means that He is not like man. He is transcendent. He is, he is God in heaven. And you are just man on earth. And more so, you are a sinful man. And this is important to understand and to differentiate because too often we assume that God is just like us who are sinners. And so we assume that God is fallible, that God is imperfect, that God is impure. And as such that he tolerates impurity. Now if that were true, God would not be God. He would certainly not be a good God. Because he would be a God prone to error and evil and weakness and darkness just like us. And so thank God that that's not who God is. But rather he is the God of infinite perfection, of spotless purity, righteousness and goodness. This is the glory of the holy God. And as such, he requires sinless perfection in order to be in his presence. You must be holy as he is holy. This is his standard. His law is what we are measured by. Now, of course, at this point, we're tempted to object and say, well, that's kind of unfair. That's unreasonable. Why can't mostly good be good enough? How can God expect perfection from us? That's, that's harsh. That's overbearing. He sounds like one of those tiger moms. But listen, when we react like this, we're really looking at this whole thing upside down. Because God's holy law, His holy demands, this is true righteousness. This is true justice. This is true goodness. And the fact that we think it's unfair that God demands perfection is actually an indication of how far we've fallen in sin. It reveals actually how polluted we are 
That our definition of sufficient righteousness and sufficient goodness is that which tolerates the presence of sin and evil. Look, if you've, if you've lived in the sewers your whole life, growing up with the rats and just drenched in all that disgusting filth, and you've lived your whole life away from the light above, dwelling below the level of normal human civilization and an orderly society, you too would think that it's unreasonable that a job interview in the world above expects you to be clean with decent hygiene and etiquette with nicely pressed clothes. Because you don't know anything else. You're steeped in sewage. That's normal to you. But your objection to that standard of cleanliness and orderliness, it only reveals how far gone you are from the normal standard of human decorum. How much you've lost your social senses. And so it is with us. We're so fallen in sin, so deeply entrenched in the filthiness of our sin that we've lost our spiritual senses. We think it's normal to be imperfect, to be impure. We've become so tolerant of sin because we're immersed in it. And that's why we find it overbearing that God expects holiness and purity from us when that's exactly what we were created to be. And now that's exactly as humanity once was before our rebellion and fall into sin. And so you see, God's holy law of sinless perfection is the rightful standard and metric. But we've already fallen short. We're already condemned because of sin. And it's foolishness to think that we can do enough acts of obedience on our part to fulfill the law of God, to do enough good works to somehow make amends. Look, we are already guilty. We are all criminals and lawbreakers in the sight of God. And again, here we might object and say, well, that's rather harsh. God sees me as a criminal? Isn't that excessive? Well, James chapter 2 verse 10 says that whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of the law. Now, if you think about it, that makes perfect sense. And it's precisely how human society works. You don't need to commit every imaginable crime and break every section and line of federal law in order to be classified as a criminal. You just need to break one. A murderer is a criminal, even if he's never robbed a bank. A bank robber is a criminal, even if he's never murdered anyone. And so in the same way, if we've broken even one point of God's law, we are rightfully criminals before him, lawbreakers deserving of punishment. And so can you say, can you say that you are truly righteous and good and deserving of heaven when standing before the law of God? Have you ever been angry at someone? Jesus said you've already committed murder in your heart Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever coveted, been envious of someone? Have you ever lusted after anyone? Jesus said that's committing adultery in your heart already. 
Have you ever worshipped anyone other than God, chiefly yourself? On and on we can go. But the point is, not a single one of us is perfectly blameless in the sight of the Holy God. Because we have fallen in sin. We are criminals before Him. Now again here, again, 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 here. One might object. And, and, and here, they might try to justify themselves by saying, but what about the real criminals over there? In county jail? Felons and crooks? I mean, come on. Don't I fare better than them? I mean, after all, I've been a decent citizen. I pay my taxes. I try to teach my kids to be kind and courteous. Uh, I give to charity. How can God lump me together all into one group with the actually lawless men and women who are in prison right now? That's the thing. We, We love to compare, don't we? See, it's not just that we confide in our morality, but to be more specific, our tendency is to justify ourselves before God on the basis of relative morality. Because I am better and more upright than that person over there, who is evidently worse than I am, don't I deserve to be rewarded for my good behavior? Shouldn't I be recognized for my moral superiority compared to all the quote-unquote, bad people around me. Well, here's a problem. You could make all these comparisons all you want, but it's pointless because we are all judged by God, by His law and standard, not the standard of sinful men. And so what's the use in comparing yourself with other fallen sinners? And sure, it might make you feel better. And sure, it might inflate your sense of self-righteousness. But all of it is worthless. It has no bearing on your justification before God. Uh, let, me, let me put it this way, okay? For those of you who have any interest whatsoever in the Olympics, no doubt you're familiar with the name Michael Phelps. He is the greatest swimmer in Olympic history. And even more so, he is the greatest Olympian in Olympic history, not just in swimming. I mean, the man holds 23 gold medals, and that's just within the Olympics, not even counting the World Aquatics Championships. Like, I don't believe that Spider-Man is real. I, I don't believe that Batman is real, although I wish he were. I really like him. But Aquaman, I think we got him, ladies and gentlemen. I, I think it's, it's Michael Phelps. I mean, it's unbelievable what this man is capable of in the water. Now, suppose... Suppose that I, don't know why I would, but suppose that I challenged him to a swimming race. And let's say that the starting line was on the shore of Half Moon Bay here on the coast of California. And the finish line was the island of Maui, where evidently a lot of people in our church are going these days to vacation. That's more than 2,000 miles from here, from Half Moon Bay to Hawaii. And so the race begins from Half Moon Bay, and Michael Phelps and I, we we jump into the water together, and we both begin swimming our way to the shore of Maui. Now, two things are bound to happen, guaranteed. Number one, he will crush me. 
Okay, he will speed past me so bad. I mean, I'm going to be huffing, I'm puffing, just flailing my arms, and he's going to be swimming with one arm, and with the other arm, he's going to go, mahalo, you know, and just pass by me. So, okay, he's going to be faster, and he'll go much, much further than me. But the second thing that's bound to happen is we're both going to die. Neither of us is going to complete the race. It's too far. It's humanly impossible to swim from here to Hawaii. Our bodies will fail us and we'll drown trying to get there. You see, this is the problem with relative morality. Sure, Michael Phelps is a lot better of a swimmer than I am. There's no comparison. I get it. But if the standard, if the goal is the vast, immeasurable distance of more than 2,000 miles in the Pacific Ocean, it doesn't matter who is relatively better because we both fall miserably short of that finish line. It is a meaningless point of comparison. That's the issue you see with comparing ourselves with other sinners worse than us. It is pointless because we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the infinite measure of His holy standard. And so that's why verse 20 tells us that by works of the law, by our own effort, by, by our own self-perceived moral achievement, no human being is good enough to be justified in God's sight, to be considered righteous in His eyes, no matter what we try to do. No amount of church attendance can earn it. No amount of religious activity, no amount of philanthropy The truth is that as sinners, we are impotent and helpless in our sin, destined for the wrath of God, unable to save ourselves, because we are all unrighteous before a truly righteous God. Hence, earlier in verse 10, it says that no one is righteous. No, not even one. But friends, here is the gospel pivot, the turning point in verse 21. It says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, meaning it's not earned and attained through our effort and obedience. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, it's consistent with what was revealed back in the Old Testament is what Paul means. Verse 22, the righteousness of God, that is God's Perfect righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This is the gospel that in his mercy and compassion for helpless sinners, God provides the righteousness we need but can never attain. It is a perfect righteousness that is outside of us. And it is through His Son, Jesus Christ, whom He sent, born into humanity, that as true God and true man, He would take the place of mankind and live the life of perfect obedience. And in so doing, He alone accomplished true human righteousness. Jesus is the only man who ever lived who actually earned favor with God, who by His merit alone is worthy of God's acceptance and delight. Not only because he never sinned, but because he also actively obeyed all of God's commandments, fulfilling the whole law for us. 
And this is why the account of Jesus at the temple as a 12-year-old is so important. And it is, it's exploding with gospel theology. That, that whole episode is not about how, oh, no, Jesus was left behind. And thankfully, well, his mom and dad were worried. And they had a whole prayer meeting. They shared the prayer request with their friends. And praise God, answer prayer. They found him. Christ is averted. That's not the point. But the point is that as a real 12-year-old growing boy, as a 7th grader, he was there at the temple delighting in the law of the Lord and meditating on it day and night. So much so that he wasn't even aware that his parents had gone back home. You see, Jesus, even as a preteen, was loving the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, without exaggeration, fulfilling the greatest commandment, the chief commandment that summarizes the whole law, which you and I have horribly failed to do. This is the life that we need to have lived, you see. And somehow, someway, our only hope is to swap our wretched lives with His Righteous life. That's the kind of life I need to have lived to be good enough for God. And that, my friends, is what God graciously gives. Verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, not by works, but by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It is a free gift. Undeserved unmerited, unearned. That's what grace means. But how exactly do we receive this gift? What must I do to be saved? What must I do to receive Jesus' righteousness as my own? We receive it through faith alone in Christ alone. See verse 22, right? The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And again at the verse, end of verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Now I'm sure that we've heard this a lot. It's all about faith, whatever that means. In order to be forgiven of sins, you just need to believe in Jesus. But really, what does that actually mean? And I'm afraid this is one of those things that we, we just repeat so much, but we don't really take the time to think about what it means. Because, okay, you, you can believe in Jesus, but the real question is, believe what about Jesus? Would oh, you believe he's a leprechaun? That's not going to do you any good. You, you believe that Jesus is a, is a good religious teacher merely? A wonderful moral example? Okay, then, so he's just another Confucius. He's just another Buddha. Or perhaps we mean... That in order to be saved, you need to believe that Jesus was a real person. Believe in his existence. Believe the fact that he really died on the cross. But still, so what? James 2.19 says, okay, so you believe that God exists. Good for you. Even the demons believe. And they shudder. They tremble. Look, the demons believe that Jesus was a real historic person. The demons believe that Jesus died on a cross, that it factually happened. In fact, they were there watching it happen. But they're not redeemed. They're not justified by faith. So what does it mean then 
to believe in Jesus Christ in order to receive the gift of His righteousness. It means to put your trust in Him as opposed to putting your trust in yourself. You see, the word believe is really the same word as to trust in the original language in which the Bible was written. To believe God is to trust God. And so the gospel saves us not when we just believe the facts about Jesus. We're saved when we put our trust in his life and his death and his resurrection. That our confidence is in him, not in ourselves. It's when you believe that Jesus is the only one who has accomplished the righteousness that you need. And you believe that he has accomplished it on your behalf. I mean, this is the whole point of Romans chapter 3. The reason that the gospel emphasizes faith is because faith is in direct contrast to morality. Why? Because morality is trusting in your righteousness. It's self-confidence that I am good enough for God. Whereas faith is trusting in Jesus' righteousness. This is what it means when the Bible says that we are saved by faith alone. Because our good works does nothing to contribute to our salvation. It was once said by an 18th century pastor by the name of Jonathan Edwards. Quote, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. End quote. You see, truly believing the gospel means that you have to also believe something about yourself. That you are an unrighteous sinner before God. Believing what Jesus has done for sinners means believing that you are the sinner for whom Jesus had to suffer and die because he was taking your place on the cross, which means that believing that that's what you actually deserve. Suffering and death. The wrath of God poured out upon you. Shame and scorn and derision and condemnation. And oh, how unwilling people are to believe this. Especially in a nice, well-behaved, well-to-do suburbia like the Tri-Valley of the Bay Area. Because so many of us feel that, well, we're, we're upright. We're fairly put together. We're proud of our achievements, our work ethic, our good morals. But friends, God sees through all of us. He sees the iniquity in us all. He sees the hidden darkness that no one else sees. We may be able to put up a facade and fool others. We are naked and exposed before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Look, if you're here and you have not repented of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ, listen, you, you need what only he can give. You need his righteousness accomplished for you. But beloved, do you see how good the gospel is? How, how merciful and kind God is that this righteousness God gives freely by faith alone. This righteousness was already earned 
by somebody else at the cost of his life, even suffering for sinners unto death on their behalf. And what God requires of you to receive this as your own is simply that you confess that you can do nothing. You confess that you haven't done anything and that you joyfully confess that Jesus has done everything. Do you believe this, friend? And if you believe this with your heart and soul and you turn to Jesus by faith, then at the moment of your mere confession, at the moment of you simply trusting in the goodness of Jesus, God takes His perfect righteousness and He puts it on you. That is the good news. That it is accredited to you as though you had lived Jesus' holy life. At the moment of putting your faith in Jesus, you are instantaneously declared perfectly righteous in His sight, forever acceptable and pleasing to Him, although you had done nothing to deserve it. Cleansed and forgiven of sin, robed in the righteousness of Christ, and bound to inherit eternal life in His presence. This is the amazing grace of God for sinners, freeing you from the burden of the law that you could never bear. This is what you must believe. Simply believe for salvation and life in Christ. Listen, every true Christian in this room, every heaven-bound soul here, is because they've come to realize and confess to God, Lord, I am unrighteous. I am drowning in my unrighteousness, no matter what I appear to be on the outside. I will never be truly righteous in your holy sight. And I believe with all my heart that this is what I need, Jesus' spotless righteousness. I need His life, death, and resurrection on my behalf. And so, Lord, save me by what He has done. Please account to me so undeservingly All of His goodness, all of His merit, all of His virtue, all of His perfection and holiness. This is true saving faith. This is the cry of the redeemed. And if you are here and you have not come to Jesus Christ by faith, this is the hope and blessing of the true gospel. Friend, receive freely the grace of God in Christ. Repent of your sin, confess it to God, and put your trust in in what He has done for sinners like you, and you will be saved. And Christian, you and I need this essential reminder. You know, the gospel is not just for the unsaved, but it is for the saved, for the believer just the same. We need the gospel every single day because By it, we are reminded and reassured of the goodness of God, the security of His love, that not a shred of it, even now, is on the basis of what we can do or have done or will do for God. Even now as Christians, as we live to serve and honor Him, your life in Christ is not being upheld by the measure of your love to God with all of your fickle waverings and spiritual struggling. But you have been redeemed and are now being kept by His love to you. And it will always be that way. This is the grace of God sufficient to sustain you in Christ. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? 
It is God who justifies. And when God has declared righteous, whom God has declared righteous, no one shall bring any charge against it. Christian, this is our daily good news. And this is fuel for the race of faith. The gospel is what empowers you to holy living and the pursuit of obedience for the glory of God as you are drawn to Him, magnetized to Him in affection and praise and thanksgiving and adoration. And so, Christian, as Jesus said, abide in my love. Rest in it secure that you might take His yoke upon you, which is easy and light. And you will find rest for your souls in the sufficiency of the gospel of his eternal, unchanging grace. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the wonder of the good news. Lord, your word reveals to us, it exposes in us the true nakedness of our sin. And we are laid bare in all of our iniquities before you. Lord, if you should count our iniquities, who can stand before you? But with you there is forgiveness. There is the gift of your righteousness. The gospel of Jesus' righteousness. Thank you for your mercy and kindness to us. And we thank you that for each of your children born again by faith as believers, you have given to us the gift of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And here you give us such a vivid gesture and visible reminder of how it has always been about you feeding us, you providing for us what we could never provide for ourselves. And supremely so, ultimately so, in Jesus Christ and His righteousness. Oh Lord, would you help us to receive these elements of the bread and the cup by faith. Use these ordinary elements for the extraordinary purpose of strengthening our faith and confirming the sufficiency of the gospel to us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.